0: Hey guys, welcome to the Twisted Sisterhood podcast hosted by Ashley Mitchell and Kelsey Vanderbilt-Ranyard, a podcast by birth moms for birth moms to give a platform to a silenced voice in the triad. You can find us on Instagram at Twisted Sisterhood Podcast, Facebook at Twisted Sisterhood, and Twitter at Birth Mom Podcast. Give us a follow and use our hashtag, there goes the sisterhood. And if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair.
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Twisted Sisterhood Podcast. Your co-host Ashley Mitchell here. It is an absolutely gorgeous fall day in Utah. The mountains are booming with the changes of the fall leaves. It's so amazing. Um... We have loved this season so far, and we're so excited for today's episode. Oh my gosh, we have our first guest of the season joining us, um, but I'm also here with my amazing and better half, uh, co-host Kelsey. I'll kick it over to you in California.
0: We have an incredible guest today, uh, Mercedes O'Brien Gruzeski. She has over a decade of experience serving families engaged with the child welfare system and lived experience with the Missouri child welfare system as she pursued adoption for her birth daughter at the age of 20. Because of this experience, she's passionate about connecting foster youth to their biological families in every role she takes. She uses her platforms to advocate for birth parents and the grief they experience throughout the process. She's become a transformational leader over her time working in the system She has excellent relationship-building skills, prefers to listen rather than speak, and is fiercely action-oriented. Mercedes has experience and a passion for gathering and analyzing data to impact policies for our youth and families. In September of 2022, she graduated from the Minority Professional Leadership Development Program with Adopt Us Kids, where she developed a language resource group to address a language barrier that adoption recruiters faced when working towards permanency for their Hispanic youth. Since then, she has joined the board of directors for a nonprofit in Denver, Family to Family Support Network, a nonprofit advocating for birth parents' voice in the hospital setting, and has been a speaker at the NCFA conference this past summer, where I know her from, where she shared her experience as a birth mother for the second time. Mercedes is currently a field operations specialist for Missouri Children's Division, overseeing St. Louis region with the support of data for implementing legislation and improvement planning. So,
1: without further ado, I'm on of, of breath. Welcome, Mercedes. <laughs> Welcome. That is fire, my dear. I mean, you just blew my qualifications out of the water in like two sentences. So congratulations. <laughs> not that that's hard to do.
2: <laughs> yeah, you definitely had to take a breath out of that for sure. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I haven't yeah. stopped. I have not stopped. Let me tell you. I just keep going. <laughs> yeah.
0: Thank you for the wonderful introduction we're really happy to have you and um we're just really excited to hear your story you're a first birth mom guest of the season of the third season of the twisted sisterhood so go ahead like jump in we just want to hear your story and anything any any good stuff that you have to tell us
2: so i'm just so grateful to be in this space to be able to share my story it's It's healing for me. It's like I learned something from my story every time I share it. And so this is just like a really great opportunity and to connect with two other birth moms, which, again, just being in the space, you two are probably like the first two people that I know, like Kelsey was the first birth mom I'd ever met. And now, and then the conference, I met a few other and Ashley, wow, it's just, it's great to know I'm not alone on this island anymore. I thought, It was just me. Um, So with that being said, you know, when I was I was 20 years old um, going to school uh, for criminal justice, I was driving what I called a rusty Bronco, that bad boy. I had to say a prayer before I started him. Just please start for me. Please start for me. And He did every time he did. Thank the Lord. And uh, I was working at Starbucks. I had put in eight years as a barista. Man, they really did their time with me. And um, in the process of that, uh, my family moved from the state of Missouri to Illinois, and I decided to still stay in St. Louis. And that just kind of like took the floor out from under me in a way that I didn't really know was gonna happen. Like they felt like they were in it. They were in Illinois. That's like an hour away. I had their support, but. I didn't as much as I thought I did and, and I found myself hanging out with the wrong crowd making you know impulses decisions to get to the next point and I ended up having unsafe sex uh with the man I was with and unfortunately as he had a really good soul but he had quite a criminal record for the age we were he I was 20 he was 22 um we were seeing each other for about 5 years and he was in and out of jail for that whole time and um we weren't really together when we had uh when we connected the way we did and um it was unprotected and I knew I knew I was going to be pregnant but like I couldn't handle the truth I'll be honest I couldn't handle it um so we had separated we stopped talking to each other and um then I realized I was pregnant I took quite a few pregnancy tests. Like, this cannot be real. Like, no, this can't. This isn't true. I think I took two or three. <laughs> and by the last one, I'm like, okay, I have to believe it. And um, and I immediately knew I was pursuing adoption immediately. With uh, baby daddy being in and out of jail, um, my life already the way it was, I just saw this this same cycle developing that my mom, God bless her heart, that my mom had been in even my stepdad had been in like even my aunts had been in i'm just like i cannot recreate this cycle i knew that there was a part of me that could do it like i I could have done it but i didn't want to do it because i knew there was honestly better for myself and my daughter so with that thought in mind i was like how do i tell my family And being a woman of color, I'm white and black. So telling my Caucasian side of the family was easier to imagine than telling my family of color. I knew my family of color was not going to allow it, was just not going to allow it. So I chose to keep my um, pregnancy secret. And I was pregnant during the winter, so that benefited me. Um, Lots of big clothes, just nobody questioned it. So I gave birth to her in the hospital. It was crazy, y'all, because I didn't have any prenatal care. I didn't know when she was coming. Like, I remember uh, in March, I started, like, counting backwards. I'm like, okay, it's any minute now. I just remember having these thoughts. It's literally any minute now. And then the week I gave birth to her, like, I knew it. I knew it was coming. I knew it was happening. Um, And unfortunately, I was calling into my job a lot without them knowing why I was calling in so they just thought I was out here partying as a teenager no I just didn't want to come serve coffee at 5 a.m in the morning because I was pregnant so they put me on probation so I had to been there we've all been there Uh, so I had to go to work literally the day yes I had to go to work the day I gave birth to my daughter but I was only there for four hours (laughs) I don't know how I did it but I did it and then I was like, I have to go. And I drove myself to a hospital that wasn't um, equipped to give birth. So they did it. We got her. Um, it was it was probably one of the most traumatic situations I've ever been in physically. Um, but we did it. She was safe. She was healthy. She was beautiful. I just started crying because I didn't know the whole time. I was just like, God, please let her be healthy. And I didn't know if it was going to be a boy or a girl. So. I was like, just relieved that she was healthy. And so they shipped us off to a hospital that could actually care for a mother and a a child. So once they brought me to the hospital, that's when I started to experience uh, other nurses' opinions about my situation. And unfortunately, because St. Louis is so small, and I had been at the Starbucks that I was at for so long. I had had regulars who knew me and saw me, and mm. one of them, was the nurses, who was taking care of me. So she comes in like frazzled, and you know, I, I have you. You both have given birth, so you know what it feels like after you've given birth. You're like, I don't know what you're saying. I don't know <laughs> what you're saying. Why are you so frazzled? I'm the <laughs> one that just gave birth. So she's like, like frazzled. Like, oh my gosh, Mercedes. I can't believe you're here. I didn't even know you were pregnant. And I'm thinking you weren't like you weren't supposed to know I was pregnant. Like it's not your business. <laughs> and then she because her and my supervisor were close, she was like, So did you tell Mac? Did Mac know you were pregnant? Does Mac know? And I'm oh, like, She was really in your business. Girl, she went in. <laughs> <laughs> I only know your latte order. I don't even know your name. <laughs> like, why are you talking to me like this? And so I'm, but I'm still like the person I am. I'm like, no, Mac doesn't know. Nobody really knows. And she's like, well, I'm so sorry to hear that. How come you didn't tell anybody? I'm thinking, why are she you me these questions again? And I'm just thinking I didn't, so I was nice. But I'm just like, I don't, I didn't know how to tell anybody. I didn't know the language. I didn't know how to help them understand that this is the choice I was making. She's like, well, I really just. I'm so sad. You've been alone for so long. And that just really concerns me. I wish you could have told your family. I didn't say anything. I just found a point at the wall at this point. And she's like, so does she have a name? I was like, no, she doesn't have a name. And she said, well, well she should have a name. Why doesn't she have a name? And I'm like, like, I didn't know how any of this works. I didn't, I didn't look into anything. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't like the idea of giving her a name and then her being adopted and having to change her name. I think the words were, she's not a dog. That's what I said. I think exactly. I'm like, she's not a dog. So I don't like the idea of her changing her name. And the nurse was like, well, I really think she should have a name. And she's like, and if anything, the adoptive parents could either keep that or, you know, you could talk about it. And I was like, I took a breath and I actually like, let it sink in what she was saying. And at first, I felt like she was right. Like, this is my responsibility. Even though, even though she's not gonna be mine forever, she's mine now. And that like gave me goosebumps. That actually empowered me to take some responsibility over her. Not in the sense like I didn't want it to take responsibility over her, but it just empowered me to be a mother of her towards her. For sure. Even though sure. I had been thinking for so long I wasn't going to be that way. It was like that just gave me the opening. I'm like, I'll take it then. And that's when I came up uh, with her name, um, it's Leanne, and Leanne is my middle name, and Anne is my grandma's middle name, and Elizabeth is my mom's middle name, so she's Leanne Elizabeth. And I was very impressed, I said that out loud, and she goes, wow, where did you get that? And I shared that, and she's like, that's really impressive, that's beautiful. And I was really happy with my choice. But now, after all of the learning and looking back, i've I've felt a little anger at the woman and the nurse for coming in and just making all of these assumptions, feeling like it was her place to tell me and talk to me about my choice and my decision. Um, so i've I've just been processing that. and on the other hand, grateful that I did make that choice. Because the parents did keep her name and they did respect my choice. So that Mm. ended up working out, but God forbid it didn't. And that could have gone left for me. So then, um, you know, I just fell in love with my daughter in the hospital and I told the hospital I didn't have any plan. So they sent me um, a private agency to like talk to me that uh, basically put my, take my daughter and put her in a home that would help me pursue adoption, I guess, was what I was presented. I didn't have to say who showed up, but that's who showed up. I decided to keep my daughter with me in the room because I wanted as much time to parent her as possible. And because of that, and because um, it was just like kind of a crisis situation when I gave birth, I'm being told because of like how kind of crisisy it was that and I didn't have any prenatal care. The nurses were probably more inclined to test me and my daughter's blood just to see what was going on and where we were at. So when they did that, they they drew uh, that I we both had marijuana in our system. And because of that, the next day, I was told because I had my daughter in my room with me, there were nurses that were worried I was going to change my mind. Wow. So they hotlined me to Children's Division. So that day that I was hotlined, I know an a intake worker, a hotline worker came to the hospital, talked to me, asked the questions, where am I living? What's my substance use like? Then it's it was social, my social. And I was living with my best friend at the time, going to school, going to work. I gave all of the answers. And then they told me that they would be in touch. And uh, that was the last time I had heard from them then. So then... The next day, we, me and my daughter, we met um, who would be her adoptive family that came to the hospital. Did you get to choose the adoptive parents?
1: You weren't presented any options.
2: No, ma'am. I was presented the foster family that was going to keep Leanne while I pursued those options. So uh, the mom comes in and I just like hold Leanne, just like tighter. And I'm like, we need to talk. And I asked her... What is your household? Where do you live? What does your husband do? What work does he do? Who? How is he involved in your home? Like I asked all of the nine yards and she was eventually like, do you want to just come over? We're like, absolutely, I want to just come over. And we learned that she lived like a like five minutes away from me. So she took Leanne home that night. Um, I went home that night, and the next day I was over to her house, like immediately. The first day with Leanne in that home, it was it was amazing. Honestly, my relationship with the family that was taking care of her just budded, and thankfully it did because unfortunately, Bethany. From what I was hearing from the family had was had a bias about me that they never shared. And I'm assuming that it was because of my marijuana use. I'm assuming it's because of my skin tone or just being different. Like obviously, I'm not like obviously a woman of color, but I'm different enough that I've had enough like markers going against me, they'll lump me that way. I just don't think they were as open with me. They were as compassionate with me. And I'm saying that too, because the foster mom would tell me things that her workers were telling her, her, them. So like at one point, the foster mom came to me and said, Bethany's really worried about you and they're worried you're using us for our money. What? I said, Yes, this was like two or three months into this. So my, what I remember is Bethany told me, we need to sign, we need to get your rights signed over so we can pursue adoption, right? So baby daddy was in jail, refusing to sign. So my, what I knew was that I needed to get him to sign. So I was sending letters, I was calling him, begging him to sign, he was refusing. But Bethany on the back end was under the impression that I wasn't doing what I needed to be doing. And it's just like the communication wasn't clear, it wasn't open, and the only time I was finding out I was doing something wrong was when I was talking to the foster family for my daughter. So that that created like a, a wall there immediately. I wasn't willing to ask them more questions. I wasn't willing to sit down and be vulnerable and use the counseling services that they claimed to have offered me. So Eventually, I guess there was just this tug and pull enough that Bethany was like, we can't help Mercedes anymore. We're basically going to give Mercedes back her daughter because we're not going to fight this battle in court because baby daddy wasn't signing. So Bethany's Mm -hmm. like, we're not doing this. So I thought that was like, I thought that was okay. I thought that like, that was what was normal. So my daughter's family was like, We're not accepting that because I literally had nothing. She was going to go with me to my best friend's house and my truck that could barely start. I'm like, this isn't happening. And the foster family was like, you're right. This isn't happening. At this time, they still hadn't come forward as wanting to be an option. They just wanted to help me. So once they stepped off the board, they referred me to a private lawyer. And so this is when I approached the private lawyer. He was ancient, like ancient. This they man. usually are. They usually are. Oh, god. like you can see
1: through his skin. <laughs> Adoption <laughs> attorneys, I'm telling
0: you, I'm telling oh you. Oh my god, they they don't know. They don't have any cue to leave,
2: or they don't pick up on any cue to leave. And he didn't look at me like I was an issue. And maybe that's because by the time you know I get to him, he's like, you know, we got this. It's money, right? It's just money. By the time you get to that situation, so. Mm-hmm. Um, he connected me with somebody who had families. I interviewed a few, it just didn't fit for me. It just didn't fit. And I'm like, honestly, this is where I want her to stay. Like I had grown in love with them. They had grown in love with me and her. This is like the people she has smelled, felt, heard, grown accustomed to. This is where I want her to be. Like, honestly, this is the ideal. And so the next week they called and let me know they were going to pursue adoption with her. They talked to the kids. They took them to a park. They made lunch, asked them if they can make her part of the family. They all said a resounding yes. Asked if I was going to be included in that. Um, The family said if I wanted to be included in that, I could be. And at first I was seeing myself as being a part of a family, as maybe being Leanne, maybe having two moms. But once um the adoption finalized, I just I broke. I I they invited me to the adoption like finalization party and I showed up. I went to the court hearing. You know, the court hearing was hard enough, but the adoption party, I don't know how mm-hmm. to explain how that felt. I just mm. it it just didn't feel like it was for me. It just didn't feel like I was supposed to be there. I don't, even though they wanted me, even though that's not anything they wanted me to feel at all, I just had to get out of there. So the last time I saw the family, um, I was literally trying to hide <laughs> and um, her mom noticed and she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, no, let's go upstairs. And she's like, okay, that's fine. I have to change her diaper anyway. So we went upstairs I helped change the diaper and I was just crying and bawling my eyes out. I was like, thank you guys. I love you so much, but it's really hard for me to be here. And she's like, that's okay. It's okay. And she snuck me out. And um, that was the last time I saw the family. A few months after that, I sent them an email asking for a closed adoption because I didn't have any other language to Mm. ask for the space and healing that I needed. Um, it was basically a goodbye love letter to them. Um, and I I don't know, I don't remember how I ended it, but they, their response was so beautiful and loving. But they're like, Mercedes, we support you in whatever decision you make. And we know you're going to go on to do great things. Um, so now my goal is to figure out in my head when I will finally be good enough for myself to reach out to them, reintroduce myself, share where I'm at. Yeah, this is so interesting because
0: I as I'm listening to you tell the story, especially about closing the adoption, um, it's so parallel with Ashley's story. Oh, it's is- so parallel. Ashley did the same thing, um, and then sent a letter or an email, I can't remember, but uh A few five years later, and was like, "Hi, I don't know if you remember me. My name's Ashley, and I gave birth to your son." (laughs) Like Like I,
1: the whole time, I like I have a list of parallels. Uh, from being pregnant in the winter and bundling up and wearing all the clothes. My pregnancy was a secret from everybody that I knew, all my family, um, up until like it was too late to like I couldn't hide it anymore because this baby was coming. Um, So when you were talking about the winter weather and like bundling up and um all the way through to just uh, the middle name with Ann, uh, my grandma, my mom, me and my daughter all have the middle name of Ann. So I freaking out about our name and then up into like sending the letter, we were six months in and I sent an email. Um, This was after like their big finalization party at six months is what we do in Utah. And like, typically that's a national um, standard of six months is uh, finalization and the adoption day. And I just sent a letter and I was just like, I love you, but this is your baby. Like I had already been in that surrogate mode. This baby is yours. Like take him. Um, Because they were sending pictures and updates and I'm like, I don't even recognize this baby. Like the baby I know and bonded with was, who I knew in the hospital is so intimately and so deeply and the newborns changed so much. So I'm getting these pictures of this child in weird Winnie the Pooh clothing and things like that. I would never put my son in. (laughs) It's like, I don't even recognize this child. And I was just like, take him and please like raise him as your own. And I sent that letter because I, it was so profound Mercedes, what you said about, I didn't have the words or understanding of setting healthy boundaries, and so we just close it. We don't know how to do it differently. We're going through trauma that we haven't addressed, that we haven't had explained to us, that we don't understand. And instead of just saying, "Hey, I'm still processing through this," can we take a break? Can you maybe not send pictures? But let's like limit to to like once a month, or I can't do in person visits right now. It's I don't know what else to do, but close it. And that is so profound that you said that because I think so many of us find ourselves in a position where we think we want openness. And that's what our social workers are telling us and what people are telling us and what perspective adopted parents that match with us, love us and are offering. But when we're in the reality of it, that doesn't match how we're feeling in our grief and trauma cycle. And but we don't know the language around it. We haven't been taught that. We haven't been supported in that. And so I love that you that you said that and because is I
0: said this. Such a testament to why birth moms, expectant moms, need just as much education as the adoptive parents. And this is why we say this all the time because uh, we are we are telling them one thing that that their role isn't important anymore, uh, whether that's implied or directly stated um, that this baby is now taken care of forever. And, you know, you don't ever have to worry. You will never have anxiety, which is just bullshit. And, uh, and then, and the other, you know, they're what they actually go on to experience these birth moms is this total breakdown of their entire system, their whole world around them. And so we're not equipping them with what they need, to A, make an informed decision and B, live with that informed decision. And so I think that is, I mean, all three of us I know have have experienced yeah. that and and so have a lot of our listeners. So,
1: I mean, Mercedes, you summed it up in two words. I broke, like I broke. You said that like in that mm-hmm. aftermath when even pursuing other family, like even filling that confidence and a little bit of that calm, and this is the right place. When you had to come back to that place in the aftermath, it didn't feel the same. It didn't have the same safety and it didn't have the same security and it didn't have the same, um, it didn't hold the same space for you and you broke literally in two words. And I think that that is the understanding of we can really truly believe that we're making the right decision. But when you're in the aftermath, returning to that same space, it doesn't hold the same safety for you. Um, I would really love to circle back. Um, I mean, I have pages of notes that I know that we could talk for hours and hours and hours, but I would really love to talk about just a little bit. I want to hit on, you talked about the projection of nurses' opinions and things like that. And your stories were so colorful and amazing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And we've heard <laughs> countless stories of absolutely ridiculous biases and things like that from, from healthcare staff and things like that. I just want to ask in your opinion, when you're looking at, and I know you have the opportunity to serve in family to family that does so much with, um, adaption education in healthcare spaces. I would love to just hear your opinion on, um, how, how underqualified are nurses to serve pregnant women in these spaces, um, that come in crisis, that come in drug exposure, that come in biracial, um, or people of color experiences in healthcare. Cause you're in that space more than us. Um, we, we get to see it a little bit, but, uh, I would love to just hear kind of where your thoughts are on the healthcare side of it on how, on how well or poorly we're doing. <laughs>
2: well i'm strength based right 10 years of it strength based i think there's a lot of room for improvement um definitely a lot of room for learning to stay in your own place to to just do your job you are just here to assure that my vitals are all on par. Like, I don't know what their role is, but it sure isn't telling me what I should and shouldn't be doing about my choice to pursue adoption. And I felt, if I'm giving this nurse the benefit of the doubt that I want to, I'm hoping she left that feeling like, just like questioning everything in herself whether it was if she did the right thing or I just I just hope I left some sort of impact on her my situation that left some sort of impact like whether again giving benefit of the doubt but just how do you do it differently like because I know the way she came into that room she was fragile she was like oh my god Mercedes so for me in the work I do if I'm noticing oh my gosh, Mercedes, you're stressed out, you're frazzled, I'm going to immediately say slow down. Take a step back. This family is more stressed, more frazzled, more anxious and worried than you are right now. So I think it's important for nurses and really anybody who's serving humans who are really in their most vulnerable space to figure out how to be somebody who can who can process and move through that and or if that's not your your jam where's the resource that does yeah does the hospital mm. have a resource that can bring that person in to help or if you know you're not the right person take a step back and assess yeah. what the situation does need
0: well yeah. and it's why we have, that's- we have ob social workers who you know yeah. um i think sometimes the line gets blurred um in healthcare. And and I understand that in emergency settings too, where you did come in um, and you didn't have a a set plan and you hadn't had prenatal care, I think it does throw people into a frenzy, but we have protocols for that. We have policies for that. And so um, that's why just a widespread healthcare education and adoption sensitive care, shout out Rebecca Volley at Family to Family Support Network. Um, That's why it's so important so that they do have a hospital policy set for these kinds of situations because it it happens all the time.
1: Yeah. And this was a woman that believed that she knew you even that threw all protocol out of the window. Like this Mm -hmm. isn't even somebody that was just coming in and sitting with crisis. This is a small town, which happens all the time for women in crisis pregnancy that believe that because you spent every morning at Starbucks together, that she had an opinion about this and was willing to throw po- protocol out the window. And I think that that's so important, Mercedes. Your perspective on that—to just be like, "Hey, if you can't be the one that," and we talk to social workers about this all the time, even in domestic infant adoption, that are in um, in the throes of grief and trauma with these women. If you can't be the person, then find somebody else because you will cause more harm then do good if you can't check yourself and i appreciate you calling that out
0: yeah. and these well, people these people too exist in so many places outside of healthcare too which is why a lot of women do end up hiding their pregnancies and keeping them a secret um, because when once you are pregnant and it was not planned and you also are a single woman people are like, I have an opinion. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I didn't ask for it. I don't recall. So uh, this it happens everywhere. People have this entitlement to give you their opinion and tell you what they think you should do. And so whether it's in healthcare or your family or the woman that you make her Starbucks
2: latte every morning, they are everywhere. They are. After I had placed Leanne into the the home she was in, I did hear back from children's division and yeah. they scheduled an appointment with me. Um I showed up, of course, absolutely showed up. And I remember, again, they were asking about my substance abuse. I do it socially. I don't remember anything else, but I remember saying I do it socially. And the case, like the worker, like, 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 I looked like she didn't believe me. And I'm like, no, done socially and then literally the last thing they said to me was okay we'll be in touch they basically made me feel like they were going to stay involved in my case like
0: you're being monitored
2: yes they're going to monitor their case make sure I pursue adoption and if I hadn't pursued the adoption they would have the word they the word they used was they would have made sure I would have had everything I needed to be successful and I know what that means they would have involved themselves in my life so that was absolutely in the back of my head Mm. but not like so much in the back of my head it was on my mind but it just felt like if I couldn't make this work then I had to deal with children's division so it was like I had to push permanency for my daughter or else we were going to end up with this situation totally
1: so and one of the things that I think is you know, you're coming into the space where you're like, I want to break cycles, right? From what you've seen from family members, you talk about wanting to break cycles, wanting to break cycles and child welfare gets involved and they didn't believe you. They didn't. They, we get into this space where we see so many cases. We have so many overworked individuals in these spaces where you just become another number. They don't they aren't capable and not necessarily intentionally because I know a lot of people that are trying to do really good work in those spaces. However, they're so overworked. We've seen their turnover in social work where mm-hmm. they stop seeing you as an individual case. They just see you as another number that tested positive on a talk screen that's lying because women lie about drug use because of the fear of like all of the things, but they didn't believe you. And it wouldn't have mattered what you would have said. You were just another number. They stopped seeing the individuals. And that is a huge problem in this space when they stop seeing the individuals and just seeing you is and and clumping you into just a random number. And so it would have been in your mind. You want to break cycles. You knew they didn't believe you. And now you're in this process where the state is like not just blatantly threatening you, but it's hanging over you that if you make one. Tiny mistake. And I mean, like, forget to change one diaper in a four hour period. They're going to be watching you and take that child from you anyway. So, from Mm -hmm. that perspective, when you feel like child welfare is in your business, do you feel like you have the
2: power to fight against that? Like, what does that even feel like? I felt like I was already the best that I could be. I had had a job Mm -hmm. for seven years, I was in college. At that point, two years. I know my car barely worked, and obviously, it looked like a disaster. It looked like it wasn't safe. It did. it looked like its name was rusty. It looked like it wasn't safe. It felt like um, I couldn't be enough. It just felt like there was nothing I could do to be enough, and so that, like, enforced how I felt about a mother, and so I guess I'm still trying to get over that. You know, like mm. how what kind of person do I have to be to be considered to be a good enough mother? Well, let me tell you, because we both have dealt with this too.
0: And it was never going to be something that I felt um, ready for, like ready to be worthy enough to be a mother. There was no amount of ducks I could get in a row before becoming a mother and feeling worthy enough to be a mother because it was such a mental block for me because it wasn't real. I had to get accidentally pregnant again (laughs) for my, for to allow myself to even go there. So the worthiness thing is something we all experience because we have all at some point been made to feel unfit to be a mother. We have checked that box. And, you know, whether whether that was true or not, um, and it wasn't, you know, it's, it's a mental block that we have to push through because it's not real. That's not
2: real. It's definitely a mental block that I'm battling every day because mm-hmm. my daughter's 12 and I just, I want them to know I'm here and I worry about her thoughts and her mental health and her heart every day. I hope, that she's confident and secure and stable with the love she's getting. And she doesn't question that. And she has some curiosity about her birth family. Right. Mm -hmm. I hope it's a healthy curiosity that she can like explore and jump into one day. Um, But I I'm desperate to at least let her know that her mother loves her and will always love her and has made that choice because I was desperately in love with my daughter. I still am desperately in love with my daughter. I just couldn't give her everything I wanted to give her. And, you know, life can be taken from you in an instant. And I really don't want to leave this earth without letting her know that in writing somewhere. I'm like, what if they stumble across the podcast? Well, I'm like, at least they'll hear it. <laughs> well, Ashley, I have a question for Ashley. Ashley.
0: I have a question for Ashley, I guess, because you guys have such parallel stories and Ashley went through where the parallels stop is where Ashley wrote the letter and reopened the adoption. And obviously you're still living with a closed adoption. And so, but I, I feel like just in the short time that I've known you Mercedes is that you are wrestling with, what that may look like to re-enter her life and to, to be a part of that. And you're not sure where you fit. And I think a lot of birth moms, even birth moms in open adaptions, we don't know where the hell we fit. (laughs) So my question to Ashley is what, at what point um, do you write the letter or do you make contact and what, and what do you say? I know Ashley you wrote the letter, but I don't necessarily think that if you were in this situation today with all that you know, that you would say the same things that you did. I don't think you would write, Hey, my name's Ashley. Do you guys remember me? I don't
1: think that you would write that. (laughs) So what would
0: you say to reopen Um, that or to attempt?
1: So I don't know that there's a right or wrong time because I think every birth mom has to get to that space in their own time. And I definitely believe that the birth moms need to be there after they've done their own, a little bit of their own mental health work and healing. Um, because here's one thing I know for sure is that when you open it back up, you are making a commitment to be there and be a part of this journey. And it is, um, it comes with its own set of complexities and um, heartache that you may not understand. You, it's so easy to look at if I can be in their life and they know they can know that I love them and care about them. And all of that is wonderful. And, and, and so worth knowing and understanding and reaching out, but also in the other side of that, you know, we're almost 18 years in, and in this openness and we're in a space where I also have to hold where people, individuals don't always feel the same that I feel about it, or they have their own opinions about what happened to them and how things are playing out and, um, what they see from their, from their own lived experience and their own lens, their own perspective. And so I think one of the biggest things that I can like address birth moms to say that if you're going to go in and open it back up and reach out, you gotta be prepared to be in. And it's not, Um, there's a lot to hold and carry on the other end. And so I would not do that until you've done a little bit of your own work to prepare yourself. You you can't ever be prepared, right? Like we thought when we placed our children, that they were going to have this better life and things were going to be amazing. And that's not always true. We thought that we would be able to go on and live our life and have a second chance. And that's not always true. And so I think in your heart of hearts, if you feel that pull and that it's time to reach out, reach out, but just know that once you go in, you got to be in with it and you got to show up. And, and that means showing up in so really shitty, hard spaces and you got to hold a lot and you got to be able to be in a space where you can take ownership over choices that you made and be okay with that situation and also... Hold people accountable that also played a role in this space because this is a group effort and you cannot do this long-term relationship without a group effort. And so if you're ready to get back in, I please do because it is so amazing. And there's so many special, powerful moments that um keep you going and reminding you of who you are and and, and what you mean to this to these children. But you got to be ready to hold all the other shit too that that no one no one told you was going to be a part of it. And
0: I I think that we we've touched on this before, and I I always like to remind people that open adoption and openness and is a concept is not about um doing a favor for the birth mom, doing a favor. There's there is no world where that is the reality. The reality is open adoption is a, it's a relationship. It is a frame of mind to be open. Um, and it is a responsibility and on all the adult sides, um, it is a responsibility to uphold and, and I really do view it as an honor and it's so messy sometimes and so shitty, um, and it hurts, but it is, it is really worth it. And I think Mercedes too, um, it speaks volumes about your, the continuation of your role as a cycle breaker. Because you're a cycle breaker and you are, you truly are. Um, yes, ma'am. But your daughter is is part of you. And she's part of that that lineage. And being a cycle breaker is, um, it's something that y- you don't really, uh, you don't carry the weight of being a cycle breaker all on your shoulders. Um, because I, I thought that too, I think, in my bloodline i'm the fourth consecutive person in my dad's side of my bloodline um to relinquish a child for adoption and i think everybody sort of thought they were a cycle breaker probably in doing that um but i think also there are consequences of that separation that um that the next generation will deal with and in each generation that was broken but the cycle was seemingly broken. We all dealt with consequences of that fallout. And I think where we were missing it was not guiding each other through the rest of the of that of that new path that we were forging. And so when we guide each other through, um, I think that's when we really break that cycle. We really um we really we break it and we we help them not have to be alone on this new path that they're on.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, I think, and I look at that too, even from parenting after placement, Kelsey and I are both raising daughters that are walking into yeah. this space and understanding and having value as women. And, um, regardless of where they find themselves at being able to normalize grief and trauma and mental health and all these things, I think for all those generations, even that haven't been, um, experienced the trauma themselves, but are experiencing it through the through the ripple effect uh raising daughters I think it's I think we're breaking all those cycles in all those spaces
2: oh yeah this conversation about cycles made me think about mine um so my oh goodness well my stepdad uh he had to at the time when, you know, back in the day when birth moms uh, gave birth at that time, the birth mom went away. Um, So that's what happened to him. Um, He said he was 16 and he got a woman pregnant and she just disappeared. He didn't know the name. He never met the son. He just knew he had a son somewhere. And so there's that one. And then Leanne's foster mom well adopted mom was adopted herself Hmm. I know so I'm just realizing the cycles there. just saying them out loud giving them power it's interesting
0: yeah Yeah. so I mean and and everything is in your own time when you're ready to do things and all that I mean um you have to when you are ready to show up you you have to show up so and I know you already know that this is all stuff that you already know Yes. Um, Mercedes, talk to me a little bit about your work and, um, what kind of things that you're doing
2: Yeah, the state no, of Missouri. So, yes. So the bio was very good. <laughs> um, but right now my, my goals for my current role, my full-time job role is, um uh, I'm a field operations specialist. I love to call myself a field op. Mm-hmm. Um. And what that means is I'm overseeing the St. Louis region. So St. Louis is all mine. And um, what had happened was, is Missouri does things a little differently than a few other states in child welfare. So Missouri has a a child children's division, and children's division is where everything funnels through. So all the kids who are being brought into care come through children's division. And then we have private agencies, contractors. Well, in 2020, contractors were like, children's division sucks. We can do it better. We pay social workers more and our caseloads are smaller. Well, Mm -hmm. the person they took it to thought a little bit too much about it and was like, well, contractors are only being looked at for like five or 10 measures, like timely permanency, um, visiting youth, uh, very bare minimum basic ones that they easily got to. And funding was never penalized if they didn't. Mm-hmm. Whereas children's division, we have like 20 measures we're being looked at and we get penalized funding if it's if those measures aren't met. So that person was like, we need to standardize everything Missouri is doing in general. So even though we have contractors still, contractors have to listen to CD. So, OK, So they pushed that out in a house bill. It's called House Bill 1414 and it's requiring Missouri to do all of these changes through legislation. And unfortunately right now 2020 really impacted St. Louis in a really bad way. Like, you know, everybody's really dealing with it. St. Louis is dealing with it harshly. Like we don't have we have 2 years worth of hotline calls that need to be addressed. Wow. And they are doing their best to do it. Like these people, they are working so hard. They are dedicated. They are knocking out these, these measures. They're knocking out all these outstanding cases. I'm so proud of them. I hate to see them running around with their heads cut off, but they like, they're like, we have no other choice. This is what we have to do. We have to do this. And on top of that, they're listening to me about the data. They're asking more questions. They're open to change. I'm just like, what how did I get so lucky for St. Louis to be in like such a crisis chaotic situation but yet everybody's like Mercedes tell me what to do what's the day to stay Mercedes yeah. come to the meeting we need your advice we need your suggestions what do we do <laughs> and like I've got really good suggestions and they're listening
0: <laughs> <laughs> isn't that something
1: It's
2: amazing. Uh,
1: Today, I put on- You are amazing. That is amazing. Thank
2: Mm -hmm. you. I put on a data presentation um, for the supervisors over foster care. And I was so nervous. Like, this matters. Like, I'm trying to create a data culture. I'm trying to get them to use data completely in everything they're doing. Not just to say, hey, we did this wrong. This is missing. No, let's be proactive about it. Like, you don't want to know your kid got bad grades- At the end of the month, like, you want to know that ahead of time so you can help them get there. And they are all about it. Like, within the first five minutes of my presentation, they were taking notes, asking questions. And I was, like, so worried. They're going to be like, you're boring. Data sucks. We don't need this. Like, you're just here to tell me something's wrong. But they're like, Mercedes, we're actually having fun at work. I'm so proud of my teams. This role was honestly, more than I could ask for, you know, it's really important for me to have impact over policies and child welfare, because as we've just talked about for the past beautiful 45 minutes, it's not, it's not a a clear cut thing. It's easy to mess up and cause more harm than good in these situations. It's really important. We know how to meet these people's needs. And unfortunately, there are some serious racial disparities in child welfare. We are seeing high rates of people of color being brought into care. And some areas are getting better, but it's just the truth of the matter that we have wonderful Caucasian people with the best intentions serving people of color. Saying they know how to be in a person of color's home, know what they're saying, know their needs, understand how they parent differently. It's just, it's not the same. So my goal is in child welfare from like here on probably till the day I hit the grave is to just educate Anybody in child welfare serving, really any other minority of color, this is really where I'm so passionate at, it's really why I'm here, is because our families of color are just being separated, they're being broken, and I know the child welfare system, most people in it are not trying to do that, so I'm here to help give them tools on how to be compassionate, how to use curiosity, how to slow yourself down in crisis situations, ask questions sympathize with where they're at like we have a lot of kids kids like like 22 just graduating college coming in going to the north part of St. Louis which is not safe not safe at all just happy go lucky hi I'm here to talk to you about your child that was just removed no ma'am no ma'am no ma'am we got to slow down put yourself in their shoes it's just We have like the savior complex that we really need to, to sort through and learn how to address. So I'm very, very passionate about that and I could talk about it forever. Yeah.
1: Mercedes, I am so, I mean, I know Kelsey and I are just so incredibly grateful for you coming on and sharing your story. Also just the work that you're doing, reminding us to meet people where they're at and then step the hell out when we can't meet the people they're at and implement the right kind of people and resources and support. Mercedes, we will be sure to list all of the spaces that p- individuals can find you. The work that you're doing is so incredible. I just thank you again for coming on, being so vulnerable with us, allowing us to hold so much space for you in your individual journey, but also like light like the passion of what you're doing. Um, St. Louis is well. lucky.
0: St. Louis yes, is lucky to have absolutely. you. Everybody
1: oh, in that city is lucky to have you. The state of absolutely. Missouri is
0: lucky to have you. And we're just, and we are as well. We are also yeah, lucky yeah. to have you. And so yeah. um yeah. we are so honored that you came on Twisted Sisterhood yeah. to talk
1: with us. Thank yeah, you. thank you so much. For all our listeners, we can't thank you enough for sitting with us in these challenging and really big conversations. Um, we're going to continue to bring the heat, the vulnerability and the honesty around what it looks like to live this life as a birth mom. And so we're so grateful for all of you and we'll catch you on the flip side.